0: Welcome to This Is Not About Your Body, a body neutrality podcast where we talk about all the real shit body image issues are actually about because they're never just about the way you look. I'm your host, Jesse Neeland, and today I have with me anti-diet dietitian and body image coach Mia Kwan. I found Mia on Instagram where she goes by the name at foodbody.peace and immediately felt resonance with her work. And I know y'all love it when I have experts on here to talk about food and eating because our relationship to food is so tangled up with our relationship to our bodies. And moving away from diet culture is often the hardest part of the body neutrality journey. So I'm really excited to talk about food guilt, food rules, and food police today, especially with the holidays coming up. So welcome, Mia.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, I'm going to have you start with the basics. Just tell me a little bit about yourself and the work that you do.
1: Yeah, so i this is my second career actually and when i was in my corporate world and a workaholic nutrition was something that never really crossed my mind until i was really burned out after seven years of really not Mm. taking care of myself my eating was all over the place and you know back in the days in college and growing up i had my fair share of you know trying all the fad diets and things like that but when i got into nutrition um, I never thought that I would end up doing the work that I do now. I thought I was going to tell everyone to stop eating sugar, eat all their <laughs> quote unquote like healthy foods. And right. it was really fortunate how I stumbled upon the world of, um, anti-diet approaches that was in my uh, second year of my grad school, where I got to do a year long adolescent medicine fellowship, um, in the area of eating disorders. Helping teenagers um, across all spectrums of eating disorders and body image difficulties, um, heal their relationship with food and their body and really were was got the opportunity to be trained by some amazing anti-diet dietitians. And that's when I was first introduced to the world of things like intuitive eating, health at every size. And it was quite fortunate that I had that exposure before I actually got my license as a registered dietitian. Usually um, the dietitians who I meet who do get into the space were, didn't start off in their career in this place and only found um, kind of the problems with weight bias as they were doing kind of weight loss work. And I never had to do that, which was so fortunate. And that was being trained in eating disorders was my opportunity to really see that, wow, nutrition and physical health is not just about physical health, right? It's also can't really have physical health without emotional and mental health as well. And so even in this space of anti-diet and intuitive eating, my work really encompasses um, Seeing, you know, us as a human being holistically, we're not just our physical body, we're our emotional self or spiritual or um, like all parts of us that make us uniquely you, right? And um, that's how I see the food and body piece work um, in the way that I do that with clients now. And so um, in my online private practice now, um, I have you know various ways that I support clients who are struggling in their relationship with food and body. And it's always from that lens of mm-hmm. your holistic self and looking at all areas of your physical, emotional, mental, spiritual being.
0: So this is something I really love about your work because I think there are so many people eat, in the intuitive eating anti-diet space there's tons of people who put out really great content about you know all of the topics around food and eating but I don't often see those same people acknowledging the role that the deeper issues play like the shame the fear the identity unmet needs all of those things and the way you talk about it, it's never like, even if you're talking about just the food, nutrition, eating piece, it's never far from, you know, the topic. It's always right there. It feels so cool to me because I think it's really unusual. And I'm curious because that's different than just the intuitive eating and anti-diet education. you got, how did you come to understand that piece of it? And why do you think so many educators and providers don't tackle it?
1: Great question. Um, I think how I was exposed to it was also very fortunate after that year-long adolescent medicine fellowship that I talked about. So right after completing that and out of grad school, um, my first like, official career as a registered dietitian was actually at a university college counseling center, student hmm. counseling center. And so I that was where I began my work. And
0: huh.
1: this was an environment where I was the only non-mental uh, health clinician And I was working alongside 20 other mental health therapists and then me, right? And so my supervisor was a therapist. My whole team were an army of therapists, amazing therapists. Um, And I worked there for seven years. So it was inevitable. Yeah, you were steeped uh, in it. <laughs> I was steeped in it of, of the mental in the mental health world yeah. in itself and also in seeing the connections that it has with body and eating disorders and disordered eating. Even though I kind of knew about it while I was yeah. being trained in eating disorders, I didn't get to see it and experience it from you know. But I never got to do that actual work, right? So yeah. being in a counseling center or any type of mental health um, environment is very different from the what usually dietitians get exposed to and start their training, which is in a clinical hospital. Um, and so, right. and. In our training as dieticians, we really don't get any education around mental health at all. I can't remember I a
0: course
1: in grad school that touched upon that. I mean, maybe we had yeah. one hour of eating disorders and one hour of intuitive eating, but even then, you know, that wasn't enough time to really touch on the deeper, uh, deeper layers of yeah. the difficulties that I often get to talk about in my work now. And so, being in that environment, you know, I got all the same trainings that the therapy, all their continuing education mm-hmm. training. Um, All the different counseling modalities. And when I learned that therapists actually have their own therapists and do their own mental health work, I was like, whoa, you know, and that's when I um, first started my own mental health. Uh, counseling, my first exposure to therapy of seeking a therapist um, and doing my own inner work, Um, not really directly related to food or body, but addressing those deeper issues of my self-worth and um, sense of identity um, and my childhood like experiences that shaped me who I am and just developing a deeper understanding of who I am and what struggles I had. Um, And as more and more as I started to you know attend to clients, um in that environment and getting to work very closely with therapists. And often my, my student clients would be yeah. seeing me, but also seeing a therapist who was working right next door in the office. And I got to collaborate them with them you know, in real time almost. And so yeah. it was a really rich experience to not just have a deeper understanding of the work um, pertaining to food and body directly that I was doing with my clients, but also getting the insight um, that my colleagues were able to provide and sharing the work that they were doing with you know, my clients. And so it gave me that, um, multidimensional perspective. That is amazing.
0: I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And Um, that
1: was also, um, my first time that I got to do group therapy, facilitate group therapy with my therapist colleagues. So, My current online signature course, um, which I often like introduce it to my clients as it can feel like group therapy because it's mm-hmm. kind of a hybrid of group therapy and online coaching. Um, the, that model first came from, um, the experiences of facilitating, um, group work with my therapist colleagues, you know, first back in 2016 yeah. and it has evolved over time. So I think that time period, um, of my professional career deeply influenced my work and who I am and just how I
0: am. Oh, I love it. Um, So I've seen you use a tool to help educate people on the fact that your relationship to food actually has deeper roots and issues underneath. Um, Can you describe that tool, the iceberg tool and how you use it? Uh,
1: I, yeah. So I wish I could give proper credit to where I first um, picked that up. It was probably back in those days when I was getting first trained, but it really resonated with me. And I think it resonates yeah. with so many people. So when we have food and body struggles, there is kind of the surface of the symptoms, which I see as the tip of the iceberg. That's what we see. Um, and is mo- more evident of what's going yeah. on. That can be things like, Oh, I hate my body. Uh, Oh, I, I must control food. Um, I'm restricting and binging. And so these are things that people are usually aware of that's happening that you know, that they know that it's not serving them, but it's hard yeah. to hard to change.
0: It's the things um, they Google too and like yeah, <laughs> it's, seek it's, out it's help with. How yeah. do I
1: fix binge eating? How yeah. do I fix body image? Um, but, but what a lot of people don't understand or not yet aware of is what's underneath that iceberg because underneath the iceberg is uh, the tip of the iceberg is this deeper, you know, part of that iceberg that is actually fueling these surface level of the symptoms that we yeah. see. And so, for instance, with something like binge eating, um, it could be being deprived of uh, like not having your needs met, whether that's physical needs of not eating enough because you're restricting mm-hmm. or unmet emotional needs of not knowing how to cope with negative emotions or having very difficult you know, depression or anxiety um, or having really difficult yeah. um, relationships or any other circumstances in your life that you don't know how to control that then get the body or the food. Food somehow becomes the scapegoat of something yeah. to control and distract yourself from. And so these are just a few examples of what that um, under the iceberg um, things could be. And for a lot of people, these are uh, usually not just one thing, right? It's a multitude of complex factors of a lot of different things. And um, they can also be things that are more about um, the person's kind of characteristics or tendencies, things like perfectionism or very black and white thinking, Mm -hmm. uh, the need for control um, and these things that are things that come up in their other areas of their life, but also deeply influence their relationship with food and body. And so I uh, use it for, um, a metaphor to help clients see um, yeah. that one, it's kind of normal to have these underlying totally. uh, issues and they might be aware of it, but they might not fully understand how it's impacting their relationship with food and body. And that's kind of bridging that kind of connection of helping clients understand what's fueling yeah. the symptoms can help us go deeper in our work so that we're not just working on how do I stop binge eating, but more of how do I resolve the need, the urge to binge. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: This is so much of what I do as well. I, I think it's so cool to see someone. I mean, obviously you work with body image too, but like, and I work with food stuff as well, but you know, the focus in each of our work is sort of like, uh, the opposite side of the spectrum, but it's it's so similar and really cool that you're helping people with this specifically around food because I know those are the things people are googling late at night, are find like trying to find people to follow on Instagram for support. Like those are the things nobody thinks to themselves. Hmm. I wonder if my underlying self worth issue is causing havoc in my life, you know, or whatever. They're like, ah, need to stop binging. Mm-hmm, exactly. um, okay, so I want to ask you about a super common issue for people who are either in a space of disordered eating, eating disorders, or just, you know, still in diet culture, whatever, which is food rules. So I want to have you maybe give a little definition of like, what is a food rule and how does a person know if they have them?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. I don't think anyone has asked me before. Um, So food rules can be very overt or sneaky, right? And it's any uh belief, um, that you have around food that is that leads to controlling food eliminating food um or um, prevent you from eating the foods that you actually want to right yeah. so this is different from saying you know um, I, I don't, I try to not eat dairy because I get a stomach ache if I do, that's actually being connected to your body's needs and doing the kind thing for yourself so that, that it actually serves you. A food goal is different in that it doesn't actually serve you. And it stems from a need of like control or from fear and anxiety. It really is fueling, um, fear and anxiety, I think. And so these are those kind of common beliefs that say I must, and they're they're also pretty rigid a lot of times, right? There is no flexibility to it. It's like, I am bad if I eat sugar or sugar is evil, or I must um, eat as little carbs as possible. Or Mm -hmm. this one just came up recently with my client, which was I can eat carbs, but I shouldn't have more than like one carb source in one meal. So that's a sneaky, right? Um, so these are, if we think about it, it prevents you from, it's like, you have to fight yourself because, oh, I actually want to have both the sandwich and the sweet potato fries. But if I have this rule that says, um, you're bad if you eat more than one kind of carb in one meal, then it's like, you have to give up the sweet potato fries and then- and then later feel deprived because yeah. you didn't fully enjoy what you wanted to Um, And if you did eat it, then you feel guilty and bad. So it doesn't serve you either way. You can listen yeah. to the rule or you can break the rule right. and serve you either way. So that's a good way to kind of see if a belief about food is actually serving you or not. And if it doesn't, um, then it might be a food rule that is actually negatively impacting your relationship with food.
0: Yeah. So something I do with clients uh, sometimes is have them create an inventory of their food rules and they tend to be shocked at how many they have, at how widespread they are, because most people may be consciously aware of like a little bit like don't eat too many carbs. Um, But when you really have to go through and write them all down, like can't eat carbs after 6 p.m., have to, you know, can't eat too much, can't have seconds. Uh, It can be about the volume. It can be about the type. There can be whole foods off limits, Um, like all of these things. A lot of times people are not even really aware that they're constantly following them. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious in your experience, where do they come from? If people aren't consciously thinking to themselves, these are the rules I must follow all the time, what's going on with that?
1: Um, Diet culture? (laughs) (laughs) Diet culture is something that is just seeped into really like all areas of our lives, right? And if we kind of pin it down more specifically, um, I think the research kind of shows us that uh, our beliefs around food and body are formulated or informed by three main things, which are um, media, family, and peers. And Mm. diet culture makes its way into all of these areas very heavily. Right. And so there's kind of the overarching like diet culture idea of you know being very controlling about food, looking at food in a very dichotomous way of like good foods, good, good foods versus bad foods, or healthy versus unhealthy, and um our kind of everyday contacts of you know our peer groups are the the media that we consume, the family that we grew up in. Um, that's where we pick up our own specific food rules that we then internalize, yeah. and then it becomes your own food rule. If you grew up in a family that said, Um, I had a client who has really difficult relationship with sweets and sugar, Mm -hmm. right. And She feels awful guilty. Um, anytime she eats them, it doesn't matter how little, you know, she'll eat it or how she justifies it. She ends up feeling guilty all the time. And it, we were able to uncover that. Okay. Kind of the surface level food rule is sugar is bad. And therefore if I eat, I am bad but then, you know, when we kind of really dug into where did this come from? It was from her childhood where she grew up in a household where her mom really demonized sugar. It was something that only you could have on a really special occasion on a holiday, on a birthday, anytime else that you wanted sugar, that you express a desire for sugar that she was made to feel really guilty. Right. It's like, you're such a bad girl for wanting this bad thing. Mm. So when you start, when you have that kind of experience, when you're, six years old, right? Yeah. And now she's in her forties and it still stays with you. Yeah. And so that's usually where a lot of these stronger hold of um, the food rules come from. It, it starts way early on in probably our earlier experiences around food and body.
0: <laughs> so I feel like uh, this might be a little bit of a silly question, but how true are people's food rules generally? <laughs> How factually or nutritionally oh sound goodness. are they? They are not, absolutely <laughs> not, right? And
1: I, I know it's it's so hard for people to decipher that because, because again, we live in this very diet culture influenced world wow. um, where food gets demonized for all kinds of reasons. Um, and that can be often the tricky part to get over uh, because there are three questions that I have like, clients ask um, and help them kind of debunk food rules when we work on food rules. And the number one is, th- is this actually like factually true? Is this evidence-based and yeah. factually true? And that can be the one that takes some, you know, learning and unlearning and maybe some support from a professional who can explain the science. I love explaining the science yeah. and my clients um, because often they are very rigid. They are very one-sided and even how um, kind of diet culture or the so-called wellness culture really sneakily formed these food rules, yeah. the- that inform our food rules is by kind of like using what I call like pseudoscience, right? It's like it makes it sound scientific, and it's so right. hard. It, it makes it even harder to decipher is this actually true. But they're using kind of these sciencey words um, and citing things like research. But when you actually look into what they're citing or what they're talking about, it's either you know scientifically illogical or they're. Mm-hmm. Tr- picking science where you can find evidence, you can find a research paper for really anything, but (laughs) what is the quality of the evidence? What is kind of the amount of evidence that has around that topic? And that are, that's some of the areas that are, you know, usually difficult for people who don't have that background to decipher. Um, and that's, of, you know, the work that I help clients to kind of debunk. And they really appreciate getting to learn the science of things because it helps them, um, overcome some of those fears around a lot of the food rules that are, you know, very heavily, um, fear-based.
0: Yeah. Can you give us an example of like a common food rule and how you debunk it or, or sort of disprove it?
1: Mm -hmm. So things like, um, let's say, I can eat a piece of fruit, but I can't eat a piece of cake, right? Mm-hmm. So if I want a piece of cake, I should eat a fruit because it's a whole food. I mm-hmm. think something like that is, is something that um, a lot of people subscribe to.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: or, you know, another like along the same lines could be um honey is better than cane sugar, something like mm-hmm. that. So these are all in that kind of same family. But what people don't realize is um, there's a way that I kind of help people break down um what carbs are and sugars sh- like yeah. sweet, the added sugars are a, a one form of carb and a, f- a fruit is also one form of carb. Um, there's other forms of carbs as well, like starchy vegetables are a form of carbohydrates mm-hmm. um, grains are a form of carbohydrates. And we tend to think in this kind of Good carb, bad carb mentality, right? So a fruit is a better carb than a sweet, or, yeah. you know, a potato is a better carb than a piece of bread, that kind of idea. And it's actually when our bodies digest carbohydrates, whether it's, you know, started as a starch started as a fruit, started as a piece of cake. Um, once it starts to digest in the body, um, and the last, um, place that that is digested is, is it is in our small intestine where it gets, uh, digested down to the smallest unit of a carbohydrate. And there are three types of different, um, monosaccharides, which just means like a one sugar unit. I, I know it, this might be getting a little too scientific. Stay no, I with love me. it. There are three types of single sugar units that all carbs that you eat break down to. And so from the small intestine, it gets delivered to your liver. And here's the thing in your liver, which is where the carbs that you digested breaks down before it goes into your bloodstream. They are all converted into glucose and glucose is what we commonly talk about as blood sugars. And so if you lost me along the way of explaining this, all you need to know is your body actually can't tell the difference between yeah. whether the that glucose that ended up in your bloodstream came from a piece of banana or it came from a piece of cake it ends yeah. up the same unit of glucose and so this is kind of like a mind blowing revelation for a lot of my clients so it's like really? So my body can't tell the difference if it came from a banana <laughs> or just a cake. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. And then people are like, well, then why do we talk about like good carbs and bad carbs? And the reason is because in a banana, there are other added nutrients that maybe the piece yeah. of cake doesn't have. So there's a little right. bit more fiber, there's a little bit more potassium and you know, that's great, but that doesn't mean all the carbs we eat has to be that way, right? Because yeah. a carb is carb, and they all provide us with energy That's the carbs number one job to provide us with energy. And so that's why we have to eat enough carbs in every day. And so that can give us a lot of freedom to people to understand. Okay. So the, the helpful thing that actually serves my body is to one, eat enough carbs. And when I eat the carbs, they can come from a variety of sources from grains, from fruits, from, uh, uh, starches and From sweets. It's okay to
0: eat sweets. Absolutely. So good. Also, I honestly feel like because of the pseudoscience that leads to a lot of these false beliefs around food and any number of other things, um, it actually is really helpful to use science to push back because otherwise, like you could just say, hey, it doesn't matter. And they're not going to believe you because in their head, they're like, yeah, but there's research for the other way of thinking. So I love having the science to disprove it. And I, I think that's really cool uh really cool example. So one thing I wanted to ask is what's the relationship between food rules and food fears because I I guess I tend to think of a food fear like the kind of thing that you know if a person has avoided cake for years and years and then they they think okay now I have to eat this cake to like do my healing journey around um, you know, disordered eating, it would cause panic, right? Because they've been religiously following this rule for so long. But I'm curious if you see there there being any other relationship or a specific difference between food rules and food fears.
1: I would say that the food rule is about the belief around food. And then the food fear, so the food fear is informed by the food rule. I think um, if people say that I'm afraid to eat the cake, because then there is probably a belief underlying that fear of what is going to happen, that what yeah. what they're afraid of that might happen if they were to eat the cake. And yeah. so I would ask those questions to a client when they say, I'm terrified of eating cake because I haven't, I've been avoiding it for 10 years. Yeah. And I ask them, what are you afraid that might happen if you eat the cake? And they might say, I'm afraid that I'm going to get diabetes. I'm afraid mm. that I'm going to gain a lot of weight. And then that helps us uncover the underlying belief, uh, the rule around it, it could be eating sugars leads to diabetes, or it could be around eating added sugars um, leads to weight gain. Um, Weight gain is bad, right? So it helps us kind of uh, identify the beliefs around the food that causes fear. So I think in that way, it's related to each other. It's like the food rule is informing the food fear.
0: Yeah. It's like a symptom of it, but not all food rules come with that much fear. It's usually the kind of rules that have been given either a lot of power or has been there a long time. Like those are the ones. Mm -hmm. And
1: I I often have clients rank their, um, their food Ah, rules uh in like a pyramid format where the bottom of the pyramid could be, um, the food rules that are less scary. Like you said, the ones that are not ridden with so much fear. It's like, it's, there. You're, you're aware that I shouldn't eat after 8 PM, but if I eat after 8 PM, I feel a little guilty, but then I can get over it kind of Uh thing. Right. But then at the top of the pyramid, as we go higher on the pyramid hierarchy, it could be at the top of a pyramid. They are the ones that are attached to a lot of fear, Mm -hmm. like, you know, eating more than one dessert a day is going to ruin my health. And like any time you eat more than one dessert, you're terrified and you go down like a negative spiral that I'm going to get unhealthy and this is going to happen. That's going to happen. And so By ranking these food rules, it helps us to kind of see, okay, which ones do we feel ready to kind of work on? And it's usually the ones kind of on the the lower hierarchy. That's not as scary because once you overcome the ones there, then you gain more kind of self-trust and confidence Mm -hmm. that,
0: hey, I can do this and then build up to um, feeling that courage to tackle the ones that are on top. Something that I often think about around this is that we often we'll live our lives trying to follow rules that are imaginary. And we do this in so many ways. Like when I look back, I think of all the rules I followed around, you know, sort of gendered beauty and body ideals, you know, like I have to wear this because I have these ratios in my body. Like when I broke those rules, nothing bad happened. And I was shocked. (laughs) Like I really believed that if I dressed in an unflattering way, something awful was going to happen, you know? Um, And I, I think it's just fascinating and sort of like depressing, but also really liberating as people start to break the rules and go, oh my God, I, this whole time I've been like meticulously following a rule that doesn't even matter.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You talk a lot about the food police. So I want to bring that into this conversation because the food police and the food rules are so linked. So tell me about the food police.
1: Yeah, so the food police is who's policing the food rules, right? Mm -hmm. Like who's coming after you uh, (laughs) and telling you that you did something really bad and you must be punished when you break that food rule. Um, So, I mean, the food rules wouldn't really be impacting us so negatively unless there was the the judgy food police who's coming after you about it. And so oftentimes this can be a form of... um, a, a bigger, harsher inner critic. Um, so I see the food police as part of an inner critic that a lot of people have because a lot of clients I work with are such amazing, compassionate human beings and they are have so much kindness, yeah. compassion, and patience for others, but not for themselves, yeah. right, and, and when this show ups in their own lives in the area of food, um, it's a really nasty and mean food police voice, and so whenever, you know, they break those so-called food rules, then it's this yeah loud voice saying, you know, you should be ashamed. You're so disgusting. Now you have to go compensate. What are you going to do? Are you going to, how are you going to add in another run? Or now you have to stop eating this for the rest of the month, whatever it might be. It's this constant loud chatter voice that is happening in their internal dialogue when they break these so-called rules. And it can really send people down a spiral you know it's not just about that moment that you eat the cake but it could be the whole day or the whole mm-hmm. week after that this food police constantly is nagging at you that you remind you that you were so yeah. bad that you you have to be punished or must compensate somehow
0: and what would you say the purpose of the food police is like what's it trying to accomplish by being so loud and aggressive
1: yeah you know, any part of us, um, I try to remind my clients because I'm also very big on self-compassion in my work um, is that even these really mean, nasty part of us are trying to protect us and, and keep us safe. And they just don't know how to do that best. And so that's why they're doing this in a way that they think is helpful, but it's actually not helpful. And so when there is this really strong core belief that you internalize that um, eating sugar makes you a bad person, then the food police is trying to act as your kind of moral guidance, right, to say to keep you on a quote unquote good track. It, it wants you to be a good person, right? But we, we've learned that, you know, we want to be- a it's so heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> heartbreaking. And I think being able to kind of look at it from that lens can help people see like, oh, okay, right? Like it doesn't mean it's mm. me um, being inherently like broken or mm. that I'm a really like nasty person inside because you're absolutely not when we look at how they treat other people. Yeah. But it's this kind of, um, in a way, it's just like, twisted moral compass because the rules that they are trying to enforce on you were not true rules to begin with because they are not actually factually true and they're not serving your overall well-being because it's actually um damaging your relationship with food it's damaging your mental health it could be damaging your physical health um and so i i I like to put it in that light that it's trying to keep you safe but it doesn't know how to best do that
0: Yes. I sometimes will use the uh, an analogy of like a helicopter parent where, you know, we can recognize that a parent who is keeping our toddler from like ever falling down or whatever is just trying to keep them safe. Obviously, it comes from a place of love, but we also recognize that that's going to do harm to the kid who's never going to build resilience and trust in themselves, Right. And it it is so self-protective and so misguided. And when you don't know that, it can feel like it's just you, that you're a horrible, mean person.
1: Yeah. And it it really is powerful to have that different perspective. Um, I use a similar analogy of a tantrum-throwing three-year-old kid.
0: (laughs) You do it from the other perspective.
1: (laughs) Yeah. From the other perspective. because. I, 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 often talk about this, like the two parts of our brain, which is, you know, on the frontal part of our um, prefrontal cortex is our CEO brain. That's where your logic and information and all the knowledge, like the smart you is up there. And then in the back of our brain is our, what I call the scaredy cat brain. And that can, that's actually the scaredy cat brain is what's triggered and where the food police is coming from, because it's like, Hey, nice. you did something wrong. And that's not good, but we need to like, keep you safe. So we, you got to go back <laughs> good, but it's coming from this place of fear that something bad yeah. is going to happen. And so it can be like this tantrum throwing kid who doesn't know what they truly need. Maybe what they truly need is assurance yeah. um, or, or to tell them that I love you and you're safe, but they don't know how to communicate that need. So they just throw a tantrum.
0: I love that. So,
1: if we can see it in that way, like when the food police acts up, that mean air bully acts up, it's like, oh, hey, I hear you. I know you're trying to keep me safe, but this is actually not helpful. And yeah. here's a way that we can look at this um, and you don't have to keep doing that, right? When we can talk to that part of us in this more gentle way, then it can help like calm it down a little bit. And it yeah. calming the, the tantrum throwing kid down a little bit. And when we calm down, then we can access what we know up here. So even when I walk clients through the science of carbs and sugar and all that good stuff, it's like when the scaredy cat brain is acted up, when the food police is being really loud, you can't access that information because the scaredy cat brain part of you just hijacks your whole brain. And so it's first by using, you know, um, a bit of self-compassion and this nurturing voice to calm that part of you down. And then you can calm down and be like, okay, I'm in a better headspace now. My heart is not beating at you know 100 miles per hour anymore. Mm-hmm. So now let's think about this. Is sugar actually killing me? And then it's right. like, oh, wait, we just learned that your body can't tell the difference wh- whether it came from a banana or a piece of cake. Okay, so it's okay that I eat a piece of cake. I'm not gonna die. I'm safe, right? And then we can start to dismantle that belief, um, that strong food rule that used mm-hmm. to have such a hard grasp on you.
0: Yeah. So would you say that in those moments, like, are we going to hear from someone the kind of common refrain of, I intellectually understand X, Y, Z, but I just don't feel it. Like, Mm -hmm. is that the scaredy cat brain has taken over?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of clients um, that I work with usually you know, they're not totally new to the idea of intuitive eating or why, you know, having food rules and diets are not really serving me. They already quote unquote know that, (laughs) but it's like, but what I know is one thing and what I feel is a different thing. And where, why is there that disconnect between what I know and how I feel? And it's because when you're so activated, when that scaredy part cat, part of you is so activated all the time, every time you feel like you're doing something bad and wrong with food, then you don't have that space to yeah. actually, you know, try something different from the new knowledge that you learn, because your body is just on adrenaline yeah. and, you know, is just going to focus on that fight or flight response, which is what, yeah. what's happening when you're in that, you know, scaredy cat brain mode. Um, And so it, it starts with, you know, being able to practice that self-soothing and, a lot of times that's that's a part that's difficult for a lot of people because they've been mm. stuck in that pattern of not knowing what to do when that yeah. uh, when when that food police triggers the scared of cap brain and that's a value in you know working with you know, a coach or some kind of provider who understands this who can who can create that safe space for you while you yeah. try to patterns and 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 kind of rewire your brain to create a different response around these rules
0: yeah it's also like another counterintuitive thing in this is that the shame you feel and the, all of the stuff that comes in the wake of judging yourself for having an inner critic, like trying to reject your inner critic and make it shut up actually activates your system further and makes it harder to bring all of those, you know, sort of conscious parts of yourself back online.
1: Absolutely. It's like, people often say, I feel guilty for feeling guilty. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Meta guilt.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's that, you know, any type of that uh, inner critic response doesn't really serve us in any way, right? It doesn't serve us in healing our relationship with food and body. It doesn't serve us in helping us feel better about ourselves or connecting to our body, because that's also an often barrier for people to um, really work on their relationship with food is because they're, they're so detached from their body because you know, it doesn't feel safe to be in their body when they are triggered in that way, 24 yeah. seven, right? You want to yeah. run away from it, right? You want to disconnect from it. And so, um, yeah, that, that part can absolutely be difficult. And I, which is why I think when someone says that they have either a really loud food police voice, or that they have, um, you know, a mean inner critic, or they don't, they're so flooded so often that they can't, um, they can't access the knowledge that they know, yeah. then the, the work that they need to start on first is, um, developing those self-soothing practices and accessing that uh, compassionate, building more self-compassion yeah. in themselves, which is, which can be done, you know, by working on it introspectively on your own, but also can be really helpful when you can have someone who, who you can channel that to safety through.
0: Mm-hmm. Also, so body neutrality is my whole jam, but I I really, it would be more accurate to say like everything neutrality um, because emotions are absolutely a part of that. And cutting off the spiral where you're like, I'm freaking out. And then you go, but it's okay for me to freak out. There's no spiral to follow, right? If you say I'm freaking out and it's stupid that I'm freaking out and I have to stop freaking out immediately, like you're going to fall into a spiral. So I love this kind of neutral, compassionate, accepting lens, going into those parts of yourself and saying, I see that you're trying to do something. What do you need?
1: Yeah. I, I love that point that you made about, you know, feelings and emotions, because it's often trying to avoid the quote unquote negative emotions, or it, that causes more of that problem, right? Like yeah. you don't feeling guilty, or you, you feel guilty about feeling guilty, and that creates further guilt. um You feel shame about your body, and it's like, oh but I shouldn't, I should embrace my body. And then it's like, but I can't. Yeah. And I feel ashamed even more. And it's like not being able to acknowledge and accept, um, or get yeah. curious about what that quote unquote negative feeling is actually about. Yes. Right? And so when we can stop judging the guilt and the shame and start to get curious about it of like, oh, I wonder what this is about. And that's the lens that I love looking at emotions through with my clients where, um, it's so strange, um, where, once I read, I don't, I don't remember where I read this, but it was talking about, it was making a comparison to emotions with our physical sensations. Mm. And so, you know, how, you know, we have these different sensations of taste and smell and touch, and some of them can be unpleasant, right? You can smell something beautiful. You can smell something really rotten. You Mm. can, there can be a really good, like tactile feeling, or you can burn your finger on a stove and that really stings and hurts. But when we have these like negative like negative physical sensations of smelling something really bad, or you touched a burning stove. It doesn't feel good, but we don't really kind of like judge ourselves for smelling something bad. Right. It's like, Oh, that's mm-hmm. bad, but it's like, I'm bad for smelling something bad. we don't do that. You know? Yeah. And like, some a burn is actually helping us because if we're like oh that that that's hot then it helps you have this reflex of you know protecting yourself from hurting yourself further so any type of sensation physical sensation is actually information for us it's not good or bad and what if we look at emotions in that same way like no emotions are good or bad but it's just just how physical sensations are a way that we feel the outside world what if our internal emotions are a way to give us information about our internal world and nothing yeah. is good or bad. And it, it, like looking at it in this way, it can help us kind of create more curiosity of like, oh, I wonder what this guilty feeling is really about. Yeah. Oh, this shameful feeling doesn't feel good. And what, what does this mean? Where did this come mm. from? When we can be more curious about it than to try to run away from it or stuff it under the rug, sweep it under the rug yeah. or judge ourselves for having it. Right, then we can actually work with it and maybe learn something more about ourselves Mm -hmm. and take care of ourselves better.
0: Absolutely. I actually have a self-study course called make friends with your feelings because that's like such a big piece of the work I do. Um, so now that we're into the emotional realm, I want to ask about the other major issue around food, which is food guilt. Obviously we've already kind of seen a little bit how it links to food rules, food police, but I'd love you to give a definition of what food guilt is and what causes it.
1: Mm -hmm. So guilt is something that says you did something wrong right? So it's like this moral police. And so I would say, excuse me, I would say food guilt is a result of um, breaking the food rules and the food police prosecuting you. (laughs) It's this um, lingering like Feeling the result of you did something bad. Yeah. Um, and it 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 starts to bring this kind of moral lens to like who you are. It's like I'm a bad person because I did something bad. Yeah. Um and it when we feel this food guilt, it is so easy to um kind of go down a spiral because now you have to kind of redeem yourself to be good. Mm. Um and in reality, right, like food is not a good or bad issue to begin with, right? You know, so it's like, it's a very, um, it's a very twisted moral compass that we have, Mm -hmm. you know, like morality as a human being is a beautiful thing so that we can, we can align with doing the good things for humanity, not hurt other people, um, not create injustices and know when we're doing something that is of disservice to ourselves and others. And Mm -hmm. of course, correct. Right. Food should not fall under that realm.
0: Right. Right.
1: (laughs) right? And so food guilt is coming from that lens of seeing food as a good or bad lens, a moral lens.
0: In your estimation, can a person experience food guilt without having broken a rule, or is it exclusively when there was a rule that they broke?
1: I think there's always a rule around it because it's like-
0: Interesting. Why you feel
1: guilty is because you feel like you did something wrong.
0: Yeah, I guess what would you have done wrong?
1: Exactly. So if that there is wasn't, what the yeah. rule is about, right? Like why you <laughs> feel bad is because of the belief that informs your good or right. bad.
0: I feel like the only example I can come up with is uh you know something I see a lot of like intuitive eating stuff saying, which is the only reason to feel guilty about food is like if you stole it from someone else, you know. Okay. Um because yeah, that obviously it would have broken sort of a social rule but not a not an internal one. I'm wondering how many people experience guilt without even knowing they broke a rule.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think when a lot of the, that
0: seems to me like, yeah,
1: a lot of the food beliefs, um, and rules are so internalized, especially if they began so early on and usually they do, you know, where did you learn that eating sugar is bad? You know, it usually goes back to like under 10 years old. Right. And lived with that for, 20, 30, 40 plus years. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's just always a part of your life. And you never really knew anything different. And so of course it's hard to acknowledge when that's always how things had been. Um, But it it still doesn't mean it. So it makes sense why you may not be aware of it and may not even know that how that belief is actually you to feel, you know, to have struggles around food. But oftentimes when people are able to kind of identify that and say, and be able to kind of consider what there's a different way to look at sugar, what there's a different way to think about eating carbs, then that opens up a whole new world of Mm -hmm. how they engage with food, how they think about food. And as a result, resolve that guilty around food.
0: So when we talked about this before, and I was asking sort of what does the work look like for overcoming a lot of food guilt, you mentioned the um, sort of court system analogy and the inner bully and inner judge. So I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that.
1: Um, so I think... I I use either like food guilt or food police or any of the things that we talked about um, in a way that, you know, whatever resonates with a client the most, because essentially they all kind of come back to the same thing. There is some kind of belief around food. And then there is some kind of like inner judge or bully or food police, whatever you want to call it, that is enforcing the rule. Um, And so, and so we may like start with kind of thinking about um, what are the moments that you feel most stressed out and guilty around food? So that will give us insight into what that, um, what that big belief around food, um, that is causing this distress. Yeah ultra food might be. And so it starts with really kind of dismantling, identifying and dismantling that rule itself. And so again, like kind of going back to a carbs is bad example, um, it's like, well, what does that carbs is bad like mean? Um, is it, I shouldn't eat more than one grain a day is it I shouldn't eat more than one dessert a day or in whatever yeah. time frame it is. And then specifically working on dismantling that guilt of like why it's okay to eat more than one grain a day, because actually your body, um, needs a minimum of like 15 pieces of toast each day, yeah. right? That is the science behind it. And so that might be the first layer of arming yourself with more for infer- like true information of what can counter the belief that you have. Um, and then it, then it goes to that next step. It's not about just like learning information, right? It's about actually practicing it out. And so then like creating these small steps to kind of challenge those food rules in real life, whether it might be, okay, the next time that I feel I, I really want to, you know, eat great two, you know, two bowls of pasta, like both for lunch and dinner, something I never used to be able to do because of this mm-hmm. food rule that I shouldn't eat. You know, pasta more than once a day. then it's like being very conscious of when that like fearful feeling comes up of like, oh, I'm about to eat pasta yeah. for the second time and day, I'm really scared, which is normal because this belief has been here for 20 right. years. But I also learned that our bodies actually need a lot more amount of carbs than I thought initially. And so mm-hmm. I'm doing a good thing for my body. I'm doing a good thing for my body to fuel it with adequate fuel. I'm also doing a good thing for my relationship with food because I really am craving the pasta twice a day today. And by allowing myself to have it, I'm increasing my satisfaction around food, right? So to bring in these, um, like, uh, ways to affirm why what you're doing is something that is actually serving your bigger purpose, which is to have joy, to have more peace with, in your relationship with food. And so then if, if, and um, in that process to, you know, try to stay connected to observe like what happens when you eat the pasta, like twice in a row, like, right. are you? does it feel, you know, less scary while you eat it? Or maybe the first time you try it, you still kind of freak out. And then it's like, ah, I did it, but I still freaked out. And then that's something that we can kind of process through. But yeah. the important thing is you, you were brave enough to try, try it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it can be this kind of incremental process of, um, one learning information two kind of practicing uh changing how you you know implement yeah. and work with that food rule so that you can slowly um yeah. start to get over it
0: what i love in all of this is that it's it's a way of helping restore or give someone permission to tap into their own agency and ability to disagree with someone even if that someone is in their own head at that point, it it didn't start there, obviously. But um, yeah, learning to disagree with people is a very powerful <laughs> bit of healing. And, and I think for a lot of uh, women, especially, it's really difficult to do because we're, we're taught that external authorities have all the power they must be right. And therefore, I must just follow their rules. And you're really encouraging people to go, I don't know if I agree with that rule. Let me let me come to my own decision about that. Exactly.
1: It's breaking the good girl complex. Right? Yeah. So many women, those who like identify as women kind of grew up in this society and this framework that as like what it means to be like a good girl, mm-hmm. right? Like that kind of language is so kind of still seeped into kind of a lot of like females yeah. upbringing um, uh, around the experiences of who identifies females, right? Like that you have to be like womanly, that you have to be nurturing, that you have to be kind, that you can't be angry, like mm-hmm. these kind of frameworks. And I love this quote that I read from and um, Doyle's um, Untamed, where it said, she stopped being good so she could be free.
0: And Ooh, I love yeah. Right? Yeah. it. Like,
1: don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how I need to be good or bad. Like I'm going to be me,
0: you know? Yeah. So I know that we both are passionate about calling in the social justice component of this work, which I feel like what you're describing right now, Like I'm just imagining someone like arguing with their food police being like, Hey, you don't get to treat people like that. <laughs> Um that, that that analogy also, you know, if you're fighting injustice and oppression in the world, why not fight it in your own mind? And also, it's the same thing. It is and the I mean, same. calling upon that really, I think, gives people a lot of power and feelings of like righteousness and permission to do that work and cast it off and be like, fuck that. Like, I'm not okay with being oppressed like that. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Um, and that can be such a bigger why and a bigger fuel to going against the grain of like diet culture. Right. And, you know, it, it is about, you know, it starts with me, like it starts Mm -hmm. with our own relationship with food and body. But when we start to understand kind of the bigger, like the, how diet culture fits into this bigger system of oppression, it's no different from, you know, racism, sexism, like whatever it might other systems of oppression might be. And, um, there, I don't know if you read, um, Sonia Renee Taylor's, the body is not an apology, right? Like that book really, um, kind of, helped me see that in a, Mm. in a whole new way early on in my career, um, to really understand diet culture as a system of oppression. And it helps so many clients to kind of see that bigger framework as well. It's like, this is not just about me, but you know, just (laughs) like how, what we would like all, all the people who are struggling with our relationship with food, like, and a lot of like women, again, like if we were to be able to channel this energy of trying to shrink our bodies and control our foods into you know, different things in the world, we would rule the world, right? Like energy going into how do I stay small? How do I stay good? How do I control my food? And it's really like heartbreaking and sad if we look at kind of that lost kind of potential
0: in in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so you gave me two labels or tools, the Compassionate Ally and the Food Anthropologist. And I want to make sure we get to those. So tell me what those are and how you use them.
1: Mm-hmm. So the compassionate ally is kind of the counterpart of um the the inner critic. So when a lot of people say, like, I'm my heart most harsh inner critic, I have this mean bullying voice all the time. Um, like what I help people kind of formulate is this other part of you that can calm down that, um, that mean inner bully, right? So this com- compassionate, nurturing voice, and people might say, well, I don't have that nice voice in me. Right. I say, well, if you had a loved one, your daughter or your best friend or your partner who came to you and said, Oh, this is like what I was trying to do. And I ended up doing this. I'm such a failure. Mm-hmm. I'm just posting, you know, what do you say to them? Do you say, do you agree with them to say, yeah, you're discussing. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, of course not. You know, right. I would I'd be heartbroken. Like, what do you say then? And usually their response is something really kind of nurturing. I was like, there's your compassionate voice. Right. Yeah. So it's like capturing that compassionate voice that they already have. And practicing using it towards themselves when the mean inner bully is acting up and so um in my programs like we go through this exercise of trying to find the right type of compassionate ally voice that really resonates with each person because it can look drastically different from person to person and you know one of my clients had it say it's my it's it's my old grandma who you know was 90 years old sitting on her porch petting her chihuahua yeah. and being like dear it's okay don't be too yeah. hard self. And another client might say, "Oh, mine is like a diva, like Lizzo, and saying so like, "Uh-uh, you don't get to talk to me like that," right? And so, yeah. whatever personality type like resonates with you or maybe you have someone in your life who who gives you um that inspiration and motivation and strength yeah. when you feel really down about yourself, like channel their voice if you mm-hmm. having a hard time finding your own compassionate ally. And but by intentionally practicing that compassionate ally voice towards ourselves, it can really help counter um, the the impact and the intensity of being yeah. in a critic that might be, you know, that that if you feel like that's constantly on um, kind of the default voice in your mind, and so yeah. that can be a really helpful tool to start practicing. And that. then on the other hand, um, the food anthropologist is kind of a counter to the food police. Right. So we kind of talked about it um, earlier about instead of being judgy and policing about our food all the time, what if we get curious? And so the food anthropologist is this curious, you know, adventurer, explorer like Indiana Jones. I don't know if everyone knows Indiana Jones anymore. (laughs) Right. It's like, let me see what we can find out about this Um, when you have a food police voice going, hey, you did wrong. You broke a rule. It's like, wait a minute. Hold on. What's let's see what's going on here when the yeah. food police says you're bad because you got you stuffed yourself and you got uncomfortably full that means you failed but the that's where the food anthropologists can come in and say oh hey you ended up uncomfortably full and hey that doesn't feel good but i wonder what happened here like why was it so difficult to find that place where you were comfortably full and stop and then like by being curious it could be oh you know what i started eating when i was super starving after not eating for hours and hours and i start eating when i'm starving i eat really fast and then i'm Mm -hmm. not really tasting the food and then i miss that point where i feel comfortably full and then i just end up feeling stuff like oh okay so we are really hungry to begin with what if we try to be more mindful of how hungry we get and yeah. see, and you know, not get here the next time, right? So Ugh. that food anthropologist just really helps us, you know, find different ways and and just understand yeah. what's going on better instead of not even looking at it in any other way and going like, "Hey, you did that, you did," and you yeah. need to be punished because we don't really learn from that if we if we're on no. we that good or bad.
0: So obviously, that sounds much more neutral, much more. Uh, kind to yourself. But what I love about it most, I think, is that judgment and curiosity exist on exact opposite sides of the same spectrum. They're mutually exclusive because judging says, I know everything and I have no further questions. I've come to my conclusion and that's (laughs) it. And curiosity is, I wonder if there's more information. I'm going to go find out. You can't do both at the same time. You can't. You can't. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So holidays coming up, obviously, this is a super triggering time for a lot of people. Food rules, food police, food guilt, food anxiety, so many things come up here. Um, I would be curious to hear if you had any, like, advice that you give to people who are sort of heading into a space that they know is going to be kind of flaring up their food stuff.
1: Yeah, Um, I think, yeah, the food, uh, the holidays are a difficult time, um, because there's so many more opportunities to feel triggered. Um, Mm. And so now knowing that, you know, a lot of these guilty feelings and this food fears and anxiety, like really come from kind of our core beliefs around food. Um, I think just remembering that and then the next time you go into a holiday meal or a social, you know, um, a holiday function and you find you recognize those voices acting up, can you practice some of these tools that we talked about today, whether it's coming up with that um, food anthropologist and saying, okay, the food rule here is saying, this is good or bad, or I'm being good or bad. What would the food anthropologist say about this? Use it as an opportunity to explore instead of being judgy, right? And to also understand that, you know, this is a process because if you've kind of lived in that space of, you know, food guilt and food rules for decades, um, which is often the case with a lot of clients that I work with to know that it doesn't it's not something that happens overnight and so yeah. don't feel discouraged if you feel like okay I try to use the anthropologist's voice but it didn't work right and it's like yeah. it's very likely that it's not yeah. 100% the way you want in your first try but the important thing is that you're creating awareness around it that you're thinking about it yeah. and you have to you know, intentionally think about this, like many, many times before it becomes something like more natural that you can actually yeah. do practice. And so I hope you can go into the holiday with just a lot of like compassion for yourself of like, Ooh, no wonder I have such a difficult relationship with food. When you know, I've, I've internalized a lot of beliefs around this starting from childhood, here's an opportunity to, for me to explore doing things differently. And then just maybe try like one thing that we talked about today to just start that journey and not to think that you have to like fix and conquer all the food rules at once, because that's not very realistic. And I think a lot of this work is also, um, setting kind of like realistic expectations on ourselves because that's also something people have difficulty with of like this perfectionist.
0: <laughs> I need to get it right. Like get it done in six week course. <laughs> exactly. um, you know, what I think is interesting here about the anthropologist, I'm like very taken with this idea because obviously the food anthropologist mostly is an internal experience of like you and what you've eaten. But if you apply that same voice given that holidays, one of the big triggering stressful things for people is like seeing family or having comments made on your appearance, your weight, your body, what you're eating. I almost feel like you could apply that same lens to your family members. You know, if someone says, oh, I'm so bad, I shouldn't eat this or says, you know, wow, you're having seconds. Like, I don't know, whatever it is. And instead of being like, oh, I guess that means I'm bad being like, I wonder what's going on with them. I wonder what's going on underneath that comment, you know? Absolutely. Because when other people say things about that to
1: themselves, or even when they say it to you, right. And you can, if you can see that as, Oh, what they say about food or body, whether it's directed at themselves or at me is coming from their own beliefs about yeah. food or body, when we can recognize that. And it's like, Oh, that's about their beliefs. Yeah. And- they are in their relationship with fetal body, it has nothing to do with me, then that can help us kind of protect ourselves from the impact of it. Like yeah. I, that's their truth, not
0: mine. Mm-hmm. That can be I kind of want everyone to start asking family members who make comments like this, what rule they've broken. Like <laughs> literally be like, oh, hmm, you seem to think that I've done something wrong. Could I ask what rule I've broken by eating? Yeah. doesn't like- That is so interesting to me as a concept of sort of making people aware of their own rules rather than just making yourself aware of yours. But all of it has been amazing. You are so brilliant. I am so happy you came on here. Um, Before we finish, tell everybody where they can find you on the internet and what that looks like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, My handle is foodbody.peace. That is my website name as well, foodbodypeace.com. And um, I have a lot of fun things kind of coming up geared towards the holidays and all that. So um, I would love to communicate with you. And if you follow me from this podcast, don't hesitate to say hi. I love talking to people. And it was such a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. And everyone listening, thank you so much for being here, and I will catch you next week. Hey, everyone, I'm Jessie Nealand, and I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this episode of the This Is Not About Your Body podcast. I put out new episodes every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss it. And if you really enjoyed it, please go ahead and leave me a review. Um, also, if you're looking for more information about body neutrality or you want to work with me, you can find me at my website, jessinealand.com, or you can just purchase my book, <laughs> Body Neutral A Revolutionary Guide to Overcoming Body Image Issues, wherever you buy books, ebooks, or audiobooks. We can also connect on Instagram or TikTok. My handle is jessinealand. And because I make this uh, podcast available for free and without any sponsors or ads, you can also feel free to show your support using the Patreon link in the show notes. And know that your support, if you decide to uh, participate, is always very much appreciated. Lastly, thank you to my brother Jason Neeland for creating the music that plays at the beginning of the show. And thank you for listening, learning, and moving toward personal and collective body liberation.